You are listening to the IBS IBS podcast. This is Gaia Lamperti, and today we're joined by Dr. Carlos Leon, Director of Financial Market Infrastructures and Digital Currencies Solutions at London-based software development company FNA. Hello, Carlos. Hello, Gaia. How are you? I'm great, thank you. It's Friday, <laughs> so it's always a great day to record a podcast. And you're calling all the way from Colombia. So how's it going over there? Everything's fine. We're uh, having like some relaxation from COVID measures. So I think that things are starting to get better, hopefully. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Carlos. Before we start focusing on today's topic, which is the sanctions the EU has announced against Russia since the beginning of the conflict in Ukraine, I would love for you to introduce yourself to our audience so they can learn a bit more about your background and your profile. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. As you already mentioned, I work at FNA where I'm the Director of Financial Market Infrastructures and Digital Currency Solutions. Prior to this, I worked for 16 years at the Central Bank of Colombia as a senior researcher working on financial stability, payment systems, and many things that go into the intersection in uh, network analysis, simulation methods, and machine learning. So that's more or less my, my professional background, which I should also include that I, I have worked with the IMF as short-term expert for financial stability purposes in some countries in uh, Latin America and Africa. Occasional lecturer in some local universities regarding coding software for uh, economics and, and finances uh, undergrad and grad students. And I would say that's it. Well, it's a lot. <laughs> great, great to hear. Thank you, Carlos. Um, so, right, let's kick off. Maybe, first of all, we could start by offering an overview on what the sanctions that have been announced against Russia are and the sort of relevance and impact they've had so far in the context of the conflict in Ukraine. I would say that we can say that there are like six types of sanctions. Those six types of sanctions are first the financial sanctions, which are perhaps the most uh, well-known, which are like the more uh, have been highlighted in, in the media a lot. Those financials have like several categories, let's call it that, like that. So the first that uh, we could mention is uh, the ban from SWIFT financial messaging system, which is perhaps the most, the first one and the most uh, famous of them all. But there are also some other type of uh, sanctions as uh, transaction bans, uh, asset freeze for banks and financial institutions and individuals from Russia. Also, uh, the ban on advice services to wealthy Russians. That's Those are like perhaps the financial type of, of restrictions or sanctions. We can also mention those which have to do with exports. Uh, so, for instance, we have all already heard about uh, bans on coal exports of from Russia, which are merely uh, like one quarter of their exports. So it's meaningful. Also, there are uh, transport bans. So the Russian freight operators have been suffering from not being able to, to operate in some countries. Uh, the fourth one, it could be some like targeted bans, which have to do with exports and imports to technology, chemical, fuel industry, which is obviously very, very hard for a country to withstand. Also, there are some other like, uh, let's call them like subsidiary or, or um, ex extension bans 
on some like uh, minor exports from Russia, which have to do like with caviar, cement, wood, spirits, things like that, which are, I mean, that, they don't sound like very drastic or very uh, important, but obviously they will affect the economy. And the sixth one, perhaps, uh, that we could mention is excluding Russia and Russian firms from public procurement or almost worldwide. So it's it's something which is very harsh. I mean, and that's precisely the idea to increase the pressure on Russia, decrease it, Russia's ability to fund the war, to get uh, money for, for financing the war, and obviously to uh, decrease the political base in Russia that would support uh, the conflict. So those are like the, I would say, like the uh, main ways for us to explain which types of sanctions are we seeing right now. Thank you very much for this overview. And maybe let's go through them more in detail. First of all, the first and the most relevant sanction that you mentioned was the removal of Russia from the SWIFT system. Um, and I remember at the very beginning of the conflict during the first few weeks when the decision was still, you know, many countries were still debating um, whether to put that into place or not. There were some controversies. Not everybody was agreeing because obviously it's a huge decision. Decision. So what are some of the challenges? What are some of the repercussions of such a ban? Well, first thing that we have to get clear is the, that SWIFT is a financial messaging system. So it's about messages. It's about financial institutions being able to, let's call it like this, broadcast a message to a system so that a bank in country A is able to make a payment on another country, bank C in another country. Uh, so it is very, it's a very extreme measure. So the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, is a payments messaging service, uh, a service that we, I mean, we, a country or a firm should not be excluded from, like if it were like a public service, that's an interesting question because it's, 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 uh, it's, uh, very harsh to exclude a financial institution or a country from the entire financial network. The messaging, uh, in the, from the messaging point of view, at least. So the second question that arises from here is payment messaging services, political weapons. I mean, that's, that's something very interesting to, to ask ourselves. I don't have the answer to that. And I don't, uh, I think that we're not here to discuss if this should be the case or not. But I would say that the uh, effect of banning uh, a country from SWIFT depends. I mean, the, 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 how hard is the effect on the economy? It will depend. If it's a very interconnected country to the international financial system, it will be difficult to cope with this. But we have seen that Russia, from uh, the sanctions that they had uh, several years ago, like in uh, 2014, when they have had some first sanctions, Russia started to prepare themselves. The Central Bank of Russia started preparing their economy to withstand something like that. Because before this, Russia, uh, SWIFT was the messaging system, the only messaging system so financial institutions could send payments or to initiate the payments within the country as well. So we know that from uh, 2014 sanctions, the Central Bank of Russia have been working on finding some redundancy for their system. So they developed two things. First thing is something which is called SPFS, which is uh, Bank of Russia equivalent of SWIFT. So that way, Bank of Russia was able to withstand not being able to use SWIFT so their uh, banks could make payments within the country. So that's like the, the way for, for Russia to uh, dodge the bullet in this case. 
So even if SWIFT is not working for them internally for the country, they already have a replacement for that. So Russia was already prepared for this, and this should have not affected internally Russia. But obviously, being banned from SWIFT has uh, external problems, create external problems for Russia. So many or all of the uh, banks that have been banned, uh, banned from SWIFT, which are mostly seven of them, but are one of the largest in the, in the economy, they're not uh, able right now to use SWIFT. So it's very difficult for them to carry on their business as usual and to make their payments and to receive payments from abroad. So this is very difficult, obviously, for the economy, but the internal part of the of ban of SWIFT was already taken care of by the Central Bank of Russia. So that's we could see that Russia was seeing this coming. And there are several countries which uh, I'm sure that are learning right now about this and are thinking, hmm, is, is it a good way for, I mean, is it redundant or is it safe for me to work on SWIFT internally? Perhaps we should develop our own messaging system just to have like a, a plan B, just in case. Yes, brilliant point. Thank you again, Carlos. And uh, you were mentioning how the largest banks of the country were the targeted ones, and it makes a lot of sense. And also, uh, we were discussing before how assets were, were frozen, basically, not only for banks, but also for oligarchs abroad, uh, especially in the UK that has been uh, on the headlines for, for many weeks. Um, so maybe why this decision, you know, what's, what's the relevance of oligarchs? In, in Russian politics and why their, their assets were targeted? Well, I would say that we have all heard in the news that oligarchs in, in Russia are really important. Uh, we know that Russian investment in uh, abroad is very relevant. In the UK, for instance, we, we've heard about uh, uh, football or soccer, depending on where you live. I mean, uh, has been uh, affected by this. Some, some uh, teams are owned by Russian oligarchs. So it is it is something that will affect uh, several economies around the globe. So I think that obviously that's a way to put pressure on, on those oligarchs which may be supporting Russian decisions, I mean, the, the Russian government. So it's like some kind of putting more pressure, not only to the government, not only to, to, to the base population, but also to, to the people who have the largest businesses in in Russia. Uh, about this topic, there are several like considerations to have. Those oligarchs having very um, evident e- investments worldwide is one thing, but I'm sure that they have some other ways to invest abroad, they or or internally that could not be detected or identified by. Uh, normal regulation, let's say. And that's typical wartime type of of economics. I mean, you would buy art, you would buy wine, you would buy some other things which are non-easily identified as being owned by someone. You could also try crypto. That's something that has been in the news a lot. But crypto, it's, it's, I would say it's a super far way to do that because we've seen that even if it's pseudonymous, uh, Bitcoin, for instance, at the end, uh, with some analytic, analytics, it is possible for some firms to identify who is the owner of this Bitcoin. And uh, it, it, it has... Uh, become a problem because obviously no one wants to touch a crypto that has gone through the account 
of someone who ha- who is in this blacklisting right now. So I would say that obviously the oligarchs should be also the target because these will put more pressure. But I would say that if they're smart enough, and normally those oligarchs and rich people are very smart, I'm sure that many of those, those assets were long ago outside Russia, long ago concealed some way, somehow, and long ago they should have invested in some things which are good stores of value even in war times. So I think the, those sanctions are perhaps necessary. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go as far as as to say if they're fair or not, but uh, we, we also have to take into account that perhaps uh, they already found ways to circumvent these sanctions. Fair enough, definitely. Um, and this leads us to the role of fintechs as well, because uh, especially Eastern Europe is a very active area in the tech ecosystem. And a lot of fintechs were um, having activities and offering services all around the region. Um, so while this has been very helpful on the Ukrainian front, because a lot of refugees now are uh, have been facilitated by, by the support of a lot of these innovative financial platforms, many of them have taken a stand and they decided to suspend their services in the Russian territory. Um, So maybe you can tell us a bit more about that and the influence that these emerging uh, financial institutions are having on legacy systems. I I would say that fintech has been, uh, should have been affected a lot by by the sanctions. I would say that many of those fintechs still work on legacy systems. So when uh, MasterCard, Visa, American Express said, well, we're going to stop our operations within Russia, or we're going to uh, stop uh, servicing uh, Master, Visa, American Express cards issued by Russian banks abroad, I mean, that's already a big problem for fintechs because some fintechs, not all of them, work on the rails, traditional financial system rails. For those who don't use those those uh, traditional rails, the thing is it's uh, somewhat complicated anyway because if they keep working with uh, Russian authorities, Russian banks, and so on and so forth, they may be sanctioned in Europe, in the United States. So they don't want that because if, if a fintech wants, to, I mean, if it's a Russian fintech, it makes sense to keep on working because you're based on Russia and perhaps most of your clients are Russian-based, Russian people, Russian firms. But if you're a, a, a fintech based in, uh, I don't know, in Turkey and uh, you have business in Russia, but also in the rest of Europe, I think that for you to preserve your ability to work with your European clients, you would prefer to not to enter into uh, Russian business for the moment, just to be sure that you're not going to experience a sanction because of directly going through uh, a Russian firm or, or Russian clients. So I think that the fintech world has seen some difficulties to, to keep growing in that region, at least. And uh, it makes, makes us think a little bit about uh, globalization at the end. Because we were living, I mean, before this and before the pandemic, even we were thinking that the the, the uh, world was completely interconnected and that there was no way that this interconnectedness and this globalism is going to to be uh, like put into question. And right now we're seeing that pandemic has uh, highlighted that localism is once again uh, perhaps something that we should as a societies think about it. I'm not saying that it's perfect. I'm saying that some uh, countries or some regions found out 
that uh, depending on uh, exports or imports from outside or services provided uh, by foreign firms could be replaced by those services, goods provided locally. So that the pandemic showed us a little bit. With the war, there are some things that would will also push for some, and I like to use this word a lot, rewiring of the network, of the economic network at the end. Because we've seen that the pandemic, and right now China has some problems because it's not able to uh, process all the freight shipments. So this is putting a lot of pressure on, on several countries. So this is a network thing at the end. If shipping and uh, the trade is not able to, to function as usual, you should try to find some ways to adapt to this. And perhaps the trade network will change after after the pandemic. If we think about the financial system, and we're thinking about this Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, I think that the rewiring will happen as well. Because several countries which are like... Uh, that could see themselves like Russia in the future, they will start developing their own networks of payments. They will start working with uh, those other countries which are alike. And we know that, for instance, this uh, large value payment uh, messaging service, uh, SPF, as from the Central Bank of Russia, we know that they have tried to interconnect it to another, some other sanctioned countries around the globe. So those type of networks, I think, will start to emerge and this will show us that uh, globalism and that something that we thought was like the end of history in the sense that uh, that the interconnectedness is not going to decrease, we'll be able to see that, yeah, perhaps interconnectedness will not decrease that much, but clustering of regions and political stances will try to, to regroup and try to withstand those sanctions like together let's say, in, in a very simple way. That is so true. We're definitely seeing some of the lessons we learned during the pandemic being put into action um, straight away as we are as we are exiting the, the worst times of the pandemic. Perfect. You just mentioned China. Um, so I was going to ask you, we've mainly focused on the European Union and the European sanctions so far. Um, what has been the reaction of the other superpowers abroad, always speaking about it, the financial sanctions and and their reaction to the European measures? I would say that right now, uh, at least China has been very silent. And I think that they're very um, smart about this. I mean, they don't want to take like a very strong position either way. I mean, I think they're just waiting for this the, the problem to, to find its own solution without entering the picture in a very uh, like uh, decisive manner. Even talking about the financial sanctions, we know that the, the uh, ban of uh, Visa, MasterCard, uh, Amex services affected the retail payment system of, of Russia. But there were like two alternatives from the beginning. The first one, which is uh, something that Bank of Russia developed, for uh, like to have a, a, a redundant system for the retail payment system, which is called MIR, a payment system, which is this word means peace in Russian, if I'm not wrong. So what they try to do is to have one system that would be redundant, that would work, even if Visa, MasterCard, Dynamics would not be working. But also at the beginning, there were like some Chinese uh, uh, union pay which is like the equivalent of MasterCard and Visa, and it's accepted in more than 100 countries. This, this, uh, this franchise of, of credit cards is worldwide accepted. Uh, what many 
banks or many people in Russia said, well, if we don't have Visa, MasterCard, Amex, we will have UnionPay. But it seems that at the end, UnionPay also tried like not to to enter the picture as saying, yeah, okay, if if uh, traditional European and American uh, uh, payment rails are not available, I'm going to give you a payment rail. It seems that that didn't happen. So I think that that tells us a lot about how China or China firms are trying to avoid getting into, into this brawl at the end. They just want to see what happens. And I know that some people are have been thinking about, well, if Russia is doing this, why is not China trying to do something with Taiwan? So, I mean, I would say that uh, there are like less incentives to do that. That would be a very uh, difficult thing to manage, especially because China is very well interconnected to the world financially with the trade of goods and services uh, by holding a lot of uh, securities from uh, the United States and Europe, unlike Russia. Russia from 2014, and we have some studies at FNA about the connectedness in, in SWIFT messaging system. What we have seen in those studies is that from 2014, Russia has been trying or ha- have been slowly deconnecting from the uh, financial system. That takes us to something that I already said before. It seems that Russia or and the Russian Central Bank was preparing itself very slowly to withstand something like this. So, And that's why also uh, at the beginning, some European powers were reluctant to put uh, too many sanctions to Russia because they say, well, we have a lot of business with Russia. We depend on many financial connections with Russia. But at the end, I think that they started to realize that from 2014 onwards, Russia has slowly decoupling from European financial networks. So at the end, I think that they were able to put more pressure on Russia without uh, the uh, what they thought at the beginning could be a, a systemic effect for Europe. I think that's, that's also important to take into account that those countries, that superpowers, their decisions depend a lot on how connected are their business as usual of their, their economies with Russia. And I think that China, as it's very well interconnected to the world, to Europe, to the United States, they don't want to enter into this fight very easily. And hopefully they will not. Definitely. Yeah, this kind of dynamic sounds like a deja vu, right? <laughs> it's it's nothing new. Um, but thank you, Carlos. And lastly, I wanted to ask you, what can we expect next, um, both in terms of what will be the long-term repercussions of these measures that have been put in place and also how Russia will react. Some people think that the country will increasingly turn to cryptocurrencies, maybe with wider adoption. Um, Is this the case? How soon will this happen? And how will the the population react to to the new circumstances? I would say that uh, coming again to the the, uh, word I mentioned before, I think that the long-term effect of all this is rewiring. I would say that the financial system, at least, I mean, the financial network uh, comprising countries, banks, the international uh, financial network will try to rewire. And I think that there will be like several regions or countries or uh, mind-like governments that will try to cluster together and try to decouple from the regions that they fear that in some moment could uh, try to sanction them because of uh, they have done this or that. So I think that's like the long-term evolution of the thing. 
So we will see like more clustering in the financial network. And uh, this is this is not bad at all. It's just like one topology of the financial network that we can find. Even it's uh, sometimes it's better to have like this type of clustering because you can find that everyone is connected to everyone, but it's not strongly connected to everyone. So one thing that will happen in Russia or something like that won't affect someone in Brazil or in Mexico as fast as if everyone was very uh, intensely or densely interconnected. So I think that the clustering, it's, it has some advantages at some point. So it's difficult to measure right now, but that's what uh, network analytics, which is what we do at FNA, are for, to try to understand how this rewiring, how this change the topology could affect uh, business as usual and how the economy works at the end. Uh, you were mentioning cryptos. That's that's a very hot topic. And uh, I thought, uh, I think that cryptos in Russia, there is like no incentives for people to use them because as I mentioned, there are like retail payment systems which uh, are allowing people to live as usual. So there's no point in, in having like cryptos. Perhaps uh, as, a, uh, as an ex- a means of exchange, I mean, using crypto as a means of exchange makes no sense at all because uh, merchants are, do not accept it. Banks do not accept it as a means of payment of, of their debts. Uh, and people do not transact to them with them to buy uh, milk and bread on, on a daily basis. It could work uh, in some sense uh, if people would try like to flee outside Ukraine or Russia to be able to take their their uh, wealth out, but even that's very difficult because normally people, their wealth is a house, an enterprise, a firm. Uh, so you cannot sell right now a firm to take it in to convert it into Bitcoin or something else and get it out of the country. And even if you if you flee from from the Ukraine point of view, uh, someone flees the country just because he doesn't want to be there or he or she doesn't want to be there. It's very difficult to cross the border and to find uh, medicine, food, or something in exchange of Bitcoin so or or a crypto. So I think that uh, as a mean of exchange is is perhaps a poor option. But it could work if you uh, would like to to protect yourself from inflation, from depreciation of the rubble. But as we are experiencing today, uh, the bloodbath in, in in crypto markets, and it has decreased like fifty percent in the last six months. Well, is it a store of value? But uh, it seems not, at least not in the short term. So I think it's it's a poor option for people to use cryptos to uh, circumvent uh, the sanctions or to try to have like a new type of economy running. I think that Russian people do not need that. Uh, they they have their, I mean, common people, people on the streets, they have their retail payment system working and uh, they can go to buy their groceries as usual to pay their debts, to be paid by their firms. So there is no like big incentives to have a crypto ecosystem. Brilliant. Thank you so much. This was Carlos Leon of FNA. It was a pleasure to have you on the show and thank you for your insights. Thank you, Gaia. Nice being here. Brilliant.